If it's your first Sunday here, my name's Doug. I'm the senior pastor at Live Oak, and I'd love to meet you. Uh, This summer, we've spent the summer in Ephesians reading this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church 2,000 years ago in what's modern-day Turkey. And as you read it, sometimes the temptation is to think I'm reading somebody else's mail, but the good news is it was forwarded on to us, and we think there's something very valuable in there. And so I, I hope that you've had a chance to dig in and mark it up this summer together. One of our goals is to help you do that in here as we would do that. But our other goal this summer was to help you, equip you to dig in and mark anytime you read the scripture, uh, study it on your own, because we believe a Bible in your hands, engaging it personally can be transformative to your faith. And um, a tip, we were, we've been giving like tips and tools all summer long, and I saved this one till now, although it might make sense to do it at the beginning, but I'm, I'm going to tell you why I do it now. Um, th- the tip is simply this. Get a Bible in your hands. Like, own one. Whether you buy it, download it, just have it, and then start using it. And one of the questions that somebody usually asks when they're buying a Bible, if they're buying a physical, like analog, not digital version, is, um, which you can, by the way, you can buy those, uh, what translation should I get? Because the Bible was written in New Testament's Greek, Old Testament's Hebrew, And it's translated into English so we can read it. And so let me just show you like a spectrum of translations. Like on one side, it's a word for word. They took the Greek word and said it means this and it's a word for word. The other is a thought for thought because sometimes a word for word can be clunky. It's not how we would always speak. It doesn't always flow. Thought for thought, it captures the thought, it flows. You know, I usually kind of shoot down the middle of the fairway when I'm teaching. I teach out of the NIV because that's what most people up at this point have had, although I think it's shifting a little bit, but that's kind of the most common one. When I read it personally, I read of one that's not on there called the English Standard Version, because I think it's a good flowing word for word. But the great thing is, if you do have a digital version, whether you download the Version Bible app, which has now been downloaded on 300 million unique devices and climbing, which has the Bible in multiple languages and multiple translations, you could read a verse, I could open it up and read a verse in any one of those and numerous more translations. And when you do that, you start seeing the original language kind of starts to take on this feel. I can see what different uh, people think it means and translates, and it can actually give you some insight. Uh, Fee and Stewart, those are two guys that went out on a first-name basis, They wrote a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, and Fee and Stewart have this to say. Your Bible, whatever translation you use, which is your beginning point, is in fact the end result of much scholarly work. What I want to challenge you to do is have it be your starting point. Have a Bible. Engage it. But understand that by the time you open it, so many people have worked so hard to translate it and make it available to you that that is something that a lot of scholarly work has gone on to help you engage the scripture already. And suddenly you notice that, that that's a tremendous resource. Here's the other thing. So much has gone on to make it available in so many forms, whether it be through an app like the YouVersion Bible app or the Blue Letter Bible. That's an app that I use a lot. Because you can actually have tools on there like concordances or an interlinear 
uh, uh, dictionary where like you concordance where you tap on it and it shows you the original language and you can figure out what other places is this word used. Like you can really go down a lot of different avenues just engaging scripture. But as you engage it, whether it be in app form or written form, here's the other thing you need to know about the work, the end result of much scholarly and other kind of work that got the Bible into your hands. There is no other time in history where the Bible has been more accessible to humanity. But engagement in the Bible is dwindling. But it's not because of accessibility. And if you go to back to the, to the 14th, 15th century, um, Bibles would be in a church chained to the front for, for two reasons. The main reason is because you couldn't really print those or you couldn't run to Barnes & Noble or download the app. The app store didn't exist. You wanted to keep that from being stolen. The other thing that happened in a very weird thing is people in power, religious leaders, wanted to control the message. And so what they would say is, I'll read it for you, I'll tell you what it says, and I'll tell you what you should do. And sometimes they would actually teach in a language like Latin that the average person couldn't read, and so they really started creating this divide between engaging Scripture. Well, we don't live in that day and age anymore because people like William Tyndale was a guy who told some of these religious leaders at the time, he said, he said this, and this may have resulted in his demise. I dream of the day, pointing to a religious leader, where the farm boy walking behind the plow knows more about the scripture than you do. Well, because he took the Bible and translated it for one of the first times into English, common language, and made it accessible, William Tyndale was ordered to be strangled, which he was, and then his body burned at the stake because just strangling a man to death wasn't enough because he was in unlawful possession of the Bible. And there are parts of our world today where it's unlawful to contain the scripture, but his real crime was making it available to everyday people. Everyday people like us have it because throughout history, people have said there is truth in scripture that people can engage and it's life-changing. Don't take my word for it. Engage it personally because you have resources like never before. Apps, physical versions. But the greatest resource you have when you engage the Scripture, and you can engage Scripture, please do. The greatest resource you have is God himself through his Holy Spirit. If you've given your life to Jesus, he's given his life to you so he can live his life in you and through you. The Bible's the only book when you read it that the author is actually present to engage with you. Engage the Scripture and ask God to teach you and engage with you. It'll be transformative to your faith. And people like William Tyndale have done that. People like the people at Life Church, Bobby Greenwald, is the one who pioneered the YouVersion Bible app. P millions of people are engaging Scripture, or at least can, because of what they've done. The question is, what will we do with it? And one of the people who worked really hard to help us have Scripture is the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the Ephesians. And as he writes them this letter, it's been forwarded on to us, and it was intended to be. God intended that, but Paul actually intended that his letter would be forwarded. When you read Ephesians, it's this letter to the church in Ephesus, and, and it, 
it's different than all of Paul's letters. Because most of his letters, when he would sign off, either at the beginning or at the end, he would include some personal greetings to people he knew. He would do it almost everywhere. But the church in Ephesus were probably some of the people, more than maybe any other church, that he knew the best and had the deepest connections with. He spent years there. He cried when he prayed with the elders because he said, I'm leaving and I don't think I'm ever going to see you again. And history tells us that he didn't. He loved these people. He cared about these people. But when he writes in the letter, he doesn't mention these personal names in Ephesus because he intended this actually to be a circular letter, one that we formed, it passed on to church, to church, to church at that time. And I don't know if Paul had the insight to know that it would be passed on to church, to church, to church, till it gets to one like ours. But it did. And we can engage it and have something there for us. And sometimes it's helpful when, when we're finishing Ephesians today, we're going to kind of finish this letter, but hopefully you're not finished with it because there's valuable things in there to help you understand who is Jesus Who are you because of Jesus? What's your identity in Christ? And how do you live that out each and every day? And how do we do that together? As we kind of leave that, sometimes I think it's helpful to kind of do a big picture. Like, what's the rest of the story? I love hearing, like, the rest of the story. Like, when you're watching a movie, and then, like, after it ends, they show, like, and then this happened. And sometimes it's like, oh, that's, man, I didn't start crying. Or you're, like, emotional. Yeah, end of Rudy, you know. Like, all his brothers and sisters go on to go to college now. And like, yeah. Well, I watched Friday night, uh, The Darkest Hour, about Winston Churchill and those fateful days in May and June where England was like, are we going to be overrun by the Nazis and will we survive? And his first days as prime minister. Anyway, if you love history, it's a fantastic movie. And at the end, it kind of starts rolling these rest of the story tidbits. And I won't ruin it for you if you haven't seen it about who wins World War II, but they tell you that. At the end, I'll leave, I, just let's talk once you see it. Um, but I love knowing the rest of the story. And it got me thinking, after Paul finished this letter to this church in Ephesus, what's the rest of their story? And I want to talk about that today. What's the rest of their story? But I also want to ask you, what's the rest of your story? Because you have a lot of story left to be written. And, and so did they when they got this letter. And let me back up before this letter was even written to them to tell you about this group of people in this place called Ephesus. Ephesus was this huge metropolis of a town, probably one of the most prominent cities in that area, if not the world. It was definitely top three. It had a seaport. It had industry. It had commerce. It had lots of religions, including religion uh, that um, worshipped uh, the, the, the uh, goddess Diana, also Artemis, kind of the two versions of the same person, that was a big business there. I mean, it was this bustling port, huge city, and it may have been the most important early church at that time. And it started in A.D. 52. And, and let me kind of do, just give you a picture this way. Have you ever seen time-lapse photography? Like where you take a picture of the same thing and then wait a period of time and take it again. It could be a sunset, and all of a sudden, real quickly, it just goes like that or sunrise like that, or a plant, you plant a seed and slowly it's there, and then it's like that, and it's like that, and it's like that. Kind of like this, like here's a flower, like blooming, but that didn't happen that quickly, but it's time lapse. Over time, you see the growth and progression of that flower. Probably that flower at time got to that point, and then it had stuff where it turned a funny color, then brown, and then eventually died, and sat on, if it's, anyway, that's all I'm going to say. So anyway, 
If it was in my office, it would sit there for weeks, and I would just leave it as the brown flower. But typically, there's the life cycle. What was the time-lapse history of this church in Ephesus? Well, in AD 52, you can read about it in Acts 18, the Apostle Paul goes there. He actually shows up in Ephesus, and he's visiting after he leaves Corinth, the church there, and he goes, and he starts this church. He plants this church in Ephesus. It's a desirable location. It's a great place to live. It's influential. And he plants some seeds that eventually start to sprout. And life of this church, this gathering of believers and followers of Jesus are there, but it's just starting. And then it goes from this phase of sprouting to kind of weeding. Because eventually, if you plant anything in my house or in my yard, eventually weeds start showing up if you don't treat it, and weeds will eventually take over, and you have to be careful. And, and that, that's what happened there. And about A.D. 54 to 56, a couple years later, Paul is again traveling around planting churches and visiting churches, and he spends two to three years in this city. He develops deep relationships, and he spends multiple years there. And he spends, spends time weeding out from what he had planted, this truth about who Jesus is, and he starts weeding out some false beliefs and some false doctrines and some pagan practices because in the Roman world and in the Greek world, a lot of times, whatever you believe in, that's great. Just let's mix them all together and make a big belief stew, and, and it'll probably taste good. It usually didn't, but he was weeding out the different things. And as this is going on, he starts making an impact. And the church is making an impact. And people start following Jesus, and suddenly you're not just adding Jesus to the mix. Jesus is everything. And as they're doing that, the people who ran the, one of the big industries of that city, idol worship, the Temple of Diana, they get mad because they had a gift shop attached to their church. Just like every ride at Disneyland where we spent the summer. Man, you walk right out and you're in the gift shop and they would offer you, not Disneyland, they would offer you this little idol of Diana or Artemis you could take home. How great is that? You could take home your little God action figure and worship at home and it's a souvenir and all this stuff. And it was made out of silver, and silversmith industry was huge in that city. He starts affecting their profits. They riot. You can read about it in Acts chapter 19. They rush into this theater, which was one of the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world, could seat 25,000 people, and had incredible acoustics with no amplification, just the way it was built. And Paul wants to go face this crowd as they're chanting, great is Artemis, great is our God, and they want to kill Paul, and he wants to go face them. But he had wise friends who said, this probably isn't the time to make your case. You've been here for three years. Let's not have it end today. And so he pulls back, but he makes this impact in this city. And during this stay, while he was there, he probably wrote the letter we have in the Bible, 1 Corinthians. And this church is now a well-groomed garden. It's starting to flourish. It even has elders, and it's organized, and it's impactful. And then Paul nurtures it. He leaves in A.D. 57, just a couple years later. Paul stops by a nearby island, and he asks the elders from that church to come meet him. And they have this tearful reunion. And he says, I'm probably never going to see you again. And they pray together, and they weep. But there's evidence for this deep spirituality, this deep faith that shows up in their faithfulness and following Jesus and their love for people. And it's been carefully nurtured, and it's strong, healthy, and it's, it's vibrant. Then about five years later, in A.D. 62, Paul starts sending some people in to help water and maintain the growth. He sends in people like Timothy, his protege, Priscilla and Aquila, these partners in ministry he had, a guy named Apollos, and they're coming in, and they're watering and nurturing 
the faith there. Paul sends in a letter, Ephesians, and he sends it in to nurture their faith and help them grow and to keep them going. And in this letter, he affirms them and he kind of waters their faith and says, keep going. They're self-sufficient, but you can never grow enough in your faith. And so Paul does this, and then they receive this letter about that time. And we've spent all summer into it, reading through it, and Paul ends the letter this way. And if you are reading Ephesians, you might be tempted to skip over this. But, but let's pay attention to this and then the rest of the story. And in Ephesians 6, Paul ends his letter saying this. Tychicus, and again, I, 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 I did this first service. If I'm mispronouncing his name, and that's like your kinfolk, somehow like you're in the Tychicus family tree, I apologize. Please pass it on to your relatives, but I, I, that's how I pronounce it. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you may also know how I am and what I'm doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Paul basically doesn't just mail this letter. He sends it with this guy Tychicus. He doesn't tell us in this letter a lot about him, but what we do know, see right here tells us a lot about him, though. Paul trusted him to deliver this, and he was also probably delivering Colossians at the same time. If not, he did it at a different time. He trusted him to get this message there. He trusted him to say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to send a lot of personal greetings to Bob and Sally and, and, and Uncle Larry. Like, would you tell them how I'm doing? Because they're going to be worried. Paul had deep commitments and connections to these people. So he said, would you just assure them that I'm doing good? But I don't want to take up a lot of space in this letter because it's going to be passed around. And if I were to do that, I could write a whole letter longer than this just to those people. Would you just tell them, Tychicus? And he sends them. Paul trusts him with this. Tychicus was faithful to deliver it. And that's why we have it today. That's why they got it there. But here's the thing. Paul, this hero of the faith, had a huge team of people around him. Paul lived in community with others. Not just so he could move the faith forward. That's part of it but so that his faith moved forward. There are other times, and you can read about Tychicus. He's mentioned several times. He's mentioned in, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, in Colossians, 2 Timothy, and Titus. He shows up as somebody that Paul sends, and sometimes Paul sends for, and says, hey, send, bring him with you. Like, this guy was somebody that meant a lot to Paul. Like, who is that for you? Who is the person that you would trust would be faithful Who's the person you could trust with an important message to deliver to somebody that couldn't just be done in writing, but could be a representative? Who is somebody that in, encourages you and encourages others? Because what he says there at the very end, that he may encourage you. The Bible means to encourage, when it says encourage, it means to infuse courage into somebody. It doesn't mean, hey, you look nice today, new haircut. And yes, I did. It is a new haircut. Thanks for noticing. But like, it's not like compliments. It's encouraging. Saying something that encourages their faith to move forward. That's what encouragement is. Barnabas was that for Paul. You read about him in Acts chapter 4. And Barnabas earned the nickname, the son of encouragement. Paul needed people speaking courage into him. Tychicus did that for him, and he trusted him to do that for others. Who is that for you? Who is it when they speak, they infuse courage in you? That causes you not just to be brave, but have a bold faith and trust in God. You need that. Who is that for you? See, there's two kinds of people probably that will always draw a crowd with their words. One is the kind of person who has always has something gossipy or kind of stirs the pot or could really kind of stick it to somebody or they always know kind of what's going on. 
when they shouldn't really know what's going on or at least shouldn't be talking about what's going on. That kind of person always draws a crowd. But you know what else draws a crowd? The lamp on my patio at night. All kinds of bugs crowd around that. And it's not a pleasant thing. Like if you draw a crowd with your words because you're running somebody else down, man, don't draw that crowd that way. Tychicus wasn't that way. He drew a crowd, and this person will always draw a crowd when you speak in such a way that it encourages people's faith. They walk away not going, wow, that's really neat, but they walk away going, I trust God more. I have faith more because of what you just said. You infused courage into me. You need need somebody like that in your life. Who is that? Find that person for you. Paul had it. He constantly challenges us to have that, to one another, one another, love, encourage, serve, teach, admonish, challenge one another. Like, it's in there. Who is that for you? And I'll give you this hint. If you want that person in your life, be that person in the life of others. Because people who talk that way draw others to them. And you can draw people like bugs around a lamp or people around looking in the dark, looking for light. It's which which are you going to be? Be that kind of person. Be a Tychicus of someone who says, I will stand in. I don't have to be the guy. I don't have to be Paul to move this forward. Our faith today is impacted by more people that we don't know their names. We know Paul. We heard a Tychicus because we read this if we didn't skip over it. But people like that is what God uses to change the world. People who we never know their name, but we feel their impact. Find someone like that for you and then be someone like that for you. For, for, for others. And he, Paul ends his letter the way he starts it, saying words like peace and faith and love and grace. Because he says, this is what I'm wanting to infuse. I want to encourage you with these things. Peace to you. Love with faith that comes from God. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. And this really important phrase that comes into play for the church in Ephesus, with an undying love. And Paul sends him this letter to water their faith, nurture their faith, and grow their faith. Well, what happens next? Like, what's the rest of the story? There's no credits that roll at the end with a little line that says, and, and you know, they went on and, I'm not going to say about World War II, like they went on and this is what happened next. What was the impact of Ephesus and Ephesians? Like, what's the rest of their story? Their faith goes from thriving to really producing a lot of fruit and benefit in the region. It became a, it became a prominent church in the early, early church, they were a leader. As a matter of fact, a few years later, tradition says that the city became the home of the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, one of Jesus' inner circle. And this may or may not be true, but circumstances make it possible, if not probable. And he was pro- probably brought Mary, the mo- uh, mother of Jesus, with him. Because at the cross, Jesus says several statements. And one of them is, will you look after my mother? He says that to John. Behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. Like, he says, I need you to look after my mom. History and tradition, what a lot of people believe, is eventually John and Mary, caring for Jesus' mother, they settle there. Imagine this. The church in Ephesus has the apostle Paul pouring into them for years, and then John shows up. It's like, who didn't they get? They've got an all-star of spiritual leaders. And then one day, John is arrested. He's arrested, and... Many people believe, tradition says, that they tried to kill John just like the rest of the apostles. Paul was eventually beheaded by Nero. Not personally, but it was his order, the Caesar in in Rome. That John was instructed to be put in boiling oil 
and he miraculously survived. So they said, all right, well, we'll send you into exile on an island called Patmos. And it was a place where slave labor happened and isolation happened. And while John is there at a very older age, he receives a revelation from Jesus. We know it as revelation in our Bible. And you get the idea that this church that was thriving and producing fruit and things were growing and they're commended for their love and peace and grace and faithfulness. Jesus sends a message to seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The first one that's mentioned is Ephesus. The only church that we have a letter that was written to that church in our New Testament included in that list is Ephesus. And this is what Jesus, through the Apostle John, tells Ephesus, and this is probably around A.D. 96, 30 years after Ephesians. And they, you get the idea that they move from producing to their wilting, that the life cycle is starting to decline. And here's what Jesus tells the church at Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him, Jesus, who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And that what that's symbolizing is these churches who are shedding light in a very dark world. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. He commends their faithfulness, their perseverance, the fact that people came in teaching false things and they rejected it. They're off to a great start. But Jesus continues and he says this, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Basically, I will take you from being a light. Because what he's telling him is, you're going to move from being a lamp that draws people from the dark to the light. You're going to end up being a place that just attracts the insects. Turn it around or you're going to lose your influence. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Then he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And they move from this place of, of prominence and thriving to wilting. He commends their hardship, their endurance, their perseverance, rejecting falsehood and believing in truth. But he says this, you have forsaken, you have turned your back on, you have left your first love. And the word for love there is agape. It's a God love. A love of God, a love for God, and a love from God for others. He says, you don't have that anymore. Then he says, consider how far you've fallen. One thing I would challenge you to consider personally, and challenge us to consider as a church is, is our love that we receive from God 
that reflects back to God and to others, are we forsaking that? Are we losing that? Have we fallen from that place of loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving others as we love ourselves? They forsake that, forsook that, and it had an impact. It caught Jesus' attention. And they're first on the list in Ephesians of these seven churches. Consider how far you've fallen. It is worthwhile to stop and consider where your faith is these days. Because when you consider where it is, there's always more to the story. God is always writing more to the story. And the way you do that is it says here, repent and do the things you did at first. When I was commending you, when you were getting it right, when you were following Jesus, when you were loving God and loving people, when you were dependent on him, do that. Repent. Change directions. And then he, commi- he singles out. He goes, hey, at least you get this right. You have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Well, who are they? It's a good question. Because apparently hating their practices, and note that it says you hate the practices, what they did, the deeds of this group of people, what did they do? Well, this was a sect of Christianity, a part of Christianity, that thought it would be a good idea to strike a broker a deal, a compromise with pagan religions, and say, you know what? It's okay to worship idols and do that stuff, especially big commerce, big, big business, big money. And a part of their worship was sexual immorality personally and religiously. And they said, you know what? We've got God's grace. Boys will be boys. Pagans will be pagans. How about you join with us, but you still get to do that? Do we have a deal? The world is always trying to broker a deal with you. Yeah, God loves you. So what's the harm? What could come from it? This group of people, that group of people, God said, I've put you here to be a light that draws people out of the darkness. And when you say, I'm going to let the world shape us rather than letting the creator of the world shape us, you quickly move from being a light that draws people from darkness to light to become someone who draws a lot of bugs around a lamp. And you actually, the scary thing is, you may still have influence, but not one that God's giving you. But your friend's belief and understanding of who God is and who they are, a lot of it will come from who you choose to be as a follower of Jesus. And when he's living his life in you and through you, it will draw people to himself. It will make a difference. And what John hears Jesus singling out in this group, man, you've forsaken your first love, but you're rejecting being influenced by this group that is influencing so many. And then that's the rest of the letter to them. He moves on to this next church, and in the New Testament, Ephesus never appears again. So what's the rest of their story now? In A.D. 200, The church is basically dead. The city actually kind of dies out. Like you can't go to modern day Ephesus. It's it's I mean it's not what it was. But really, you get the idea that maybe they they didn't consider how far they've fallen. They didn't repent 
We don't know. But we do know that their impact diminished over time. And their faith, at least of that church, eventually died. But what I do believe is the ripples of what, they, what God did during that season created some ripples that go on today. We're all impacted by the faith of that group, by Paul, by Tychicus, by all these people who are faithful on their leg of the race. They were faithful, and it created ripples that have affected us today. So the better question for us isn't what happened to them, what's the rest of their story? The question we need to ask is what's the rest of our story? Every day you live out your life, you're writing a story. Every day that you're alive, God wants to be writing a story through you. The question we need to ask is, what is the rest of my story, and then what is the rest of our story as followers of Jesus together? Juliet Funt, who um, spoke at the Global Leadership Summit, her dad, by the way, was Alan Funt. If you ever saw Candid Camera, I don't know if that gives her more or less credibility, but I remember it when I was a kid watching old reruns of that. And Anyway, she, she had this to say about leadership. She's got some great leadership insights. She said that, talked to us about the legacy, think about the legacies of the church at Ephesus and think about our legacy. Legacy is a story about you that is yet to be written, but one for which you hold the pen. And from this day forward, in your life and your faith, you hold the pen of writing a story, just like they did. What will you do with the rest of your story? And here's what I think Paul tells us in Ephesians. Realize that you're holding a pen, that you're writing a powerful story. But for many of us, we learn to write because somebody else came in and put their hand on our hand as we held a pen, and they taught us how to write. And I think that is a great picture of what Jesus wants to do for you, to acknowledge you're holding the pen, and every day with every word, every choice, every website you click on, every purchase you make, every relationship you have, every time you engage scripture, every time you don't, everything you do, you're writing a story. And what Paul would say is, understand, you're writing a powerful story, but put your hand in the hand of Jesus and let him write for you. I remember early on when my kids were learning to write, like that's what I would do for them, and I have terrible handwriting. Like, I can't even read my writing. So I'm like, I am not serving them well. You are serving yourself well when you trust God enough to say, I'm going to put my hand in yours and let you write the story of my life. Even if it's a different story than I would write for myself. I trust you that the story you're writing is good. That's trust. That's belief. That is the kind of love that's commended in Scripture. What would Jesus tell John to tell us about our love for him and others, about our faith? Do you trust God enough to let him write the story out? Well, what I would say for you, for your faith, if you've never started that faith, start it today. Have it be the day where you plant the seed of God's presence into your life. The Bible, Paul, in Ephesians 2, describes it as a gift exchange. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourself, not what you do. It's a gift from God. Receive that gift, and the way you respond is by giving God a gift in return. You give him your life and say, it's yours, all of it. And today, I'm a child of God. You're adopted into his family. And then for the rest of your life, he grows your faith, and he writes a story. And if that's you, you've done that and you've given your life to him, keep going, persevere. Be careful of what's not true. Hold on to what is true, but hold on to the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
in Jesus Christ and then make it your goal to finish well. I would challenge you to go back and reread Ephesians and remember as you engage that scripture, a lot of people have died to put this in our hands. A lot of tools have been given to help us engage it meaningfully. And you have the the one who it's all about anyway in there, Jesus himself, through his Holy Spirit that says, I want to read this with you and write a different story, a better story that you could ever dream of for your life. Do you trust me enough to engage the scripture and put your hand in mine and let me write the rest of your story? Let's stand for closing prayer. God, people like the Apostle Paul and John, people that are heroes of the faith, and most of us have heard of them, and then people like Tychicus and any others that we don't even know their name. So many people have followed you and run their leg of the race, put their hands in yours and let you write a story through their lives that have created ripples that impact our life today. Thank you for that, that we can believe because of what they've done and how you used them. We have scripture today because you preserved it and forwarded onto us. And God, now it's our turn. And it's our turn to write the rest of the story and let you do that through us. Individually, as families, as a church, God, I pray that we would be faithful. We would not forsake our first love. And we would not ever think for a minute that trusting you with our life and our life story, let us never think and be tricked into thinking that we're missing out on life. You are the one who says, I am the life. I am the way, and I am the truth. Help us tomorrow put our life in your hands and let you write a great story. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for being here. If you'd like to talk, I'll be down at the front.